Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We'll have some flyers up. We have some posters we just got in the mail uh, Friday. Or, I don't know if they came in the mail or special delivery, some other delivery service. But we got some stuff that will be out there to remind you of the Hagen meetings coming up at the end of March. I'm excited about those. Please plan to be here. Those will be Sunday night, Monday morning, Monday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night. I know that uh, a lot of you might not be able to make the daytime meetings, but try to clear the boards for the evening meetings. That will be exciting. There will be a lot of new faces here, I'm sure. Some Rama folks from the area. This is a full-blown uh, Living Faith Crusade, so they'll have the whole team here. And uh, again, come prepared to be a blessing. I wanted to share with you also, we had the opportunity to have a power team in a month after that. Remember them? It's not the power team, it's the power force now. I don't know if you remember them, strength uh, strength displays, kind of. Uh, and they've, they've uh, it's, it's a different show now, okay? And I wasn't here when we had them in all uh, low those many years ago, 96, is that when they were here? Uh, as we had a thousand people in this room uh, to, to see their last show. Uh, listen, it's a, I mean, it's a muscle man show, feats of strength, but these guys are powerful evangelists. Uh, hundreds of people uh, typically get saved in their meetings. So this is a, it's a great opportunity for outreach. But I told them no because it was a month after the Hagans. Uh, I did that for your sake and for my sake. We're going to be busy. Uh, those are big meetings. And, and again, like Pastor Mike said, already kind of... Uh, or urging you, uh, encouraging you to set money aside to be a blessing to the Hagans. I don't want to turn around because they're going to, we're going to want to be a blessing to whoever comes in here. And I told them uh, when they asked that that was exactly why. I said, I would be very interested in having you in. The timing is wrong. And they, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I said, you know, I'm not worried about it. But this, we're, we take this seriously. That's why we try to space our speakers apart. I told the guy, and you know this, I'm kind of selfish with my pulpit. I don't have that many guest speakers to begin with, uh, but the ministries and speakers we have, we, co- we want to be a blessing to them when they do come here. So looks like they will be here in September. Uh, so that's something to be praying about. We can start be praying. We, listen, it, this is a pure outreach event. You know, other, other, they try to pitch it as kind of, oh, this will get people into your church and they'll, they'll, they'll start coming to your church as a result. Typically that doesn't happen. Not going to say it can't, and we can certainly pray about that. But the main thing is it gets people in here to hear the gospel and they will respond to it. Uh, and what, a, what, it's, it's a great opportunity to be the venue, uh, to, to open up and God's blessed us with this building. And it's a, it's a great opportunity to get people in here and see them saved. So start praying about that now. All right. Never too early to pray. Now, let's dive into this. We, it's been a long time, middle of December, since we have uh, been in our series, which began two years ago. Is it two full years or, or more now? Uh, when we started going through the Bible, cover to cover. And uh, so this is our Through the Bible, and we have made it up to the book of Acts. Since it's been so long, we probably ought to do a review today, huh? But we're not going to. Uh, we will have to do a full review, I think, before we wrap the Bible up. And I don't know yet. I, I think maybe we'll do that between Acts and Romans because that's the next, the next big shift in uh, genre as we move from uh, the history to the, the, to the letters, the, the epistles. But we, it's just as likely that we will wait and do the review right before we do Revelation. So uh, 
I do want to do, however, a quick review of Acts because it has been so long. Uh, I think, like I said, uh, middle of December and then the Christmas program, Christmas message, New Year's stuff, the fast, everything else. So now we're just getting back into that. So we're going to kind of do a review. I'll make some remarks and then what I really want to talk about. And I get so excited, you know, after the praise and worship service we had and Pastor Mike talking about getting another dose of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'm going to talk about that here toward the end, but we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit and how important He is and how important it is to stay full of Him and what that, some specific applications for us. But, uh, hope you remember, uh, and as I go through this timeline, even though I think I've mentioned them at least, uh, on the oblique, uh, as we've gone through this, I am going to include a rough timeline of events. And there's a reason for that, that I'll give you at the end of this, of this message. And it's a rough timeline. Uh, there, you can bring them up. They're, they're pretty easy to find. You can look them up on the you know, timeline of the book of Acts. You just look at it. And they won't agree perfectly. They're within a couple of years of each other. And also keep in mind this, this whole thing we're starting at, at uh, AD 30, which you think, well, wait, I thought Jesus was 33 when he, when he, died and ascended, but you understand, and if you don't understand, you can check this out too, uh, they've adjusted the calendar a few times since then. So now Jesus was born uh, three or four years before Jesus was born. Okay. Jesus, his technical birth date is, is listed as three or four BC, but just because of changes in the calendar. All right. Now, uh, Acts opens with uh, essentially Jesus restating the Great Commission. He reminds them, uh, tells them when the Holy Spirit comes on them, they're going to receive power, and these things will happen, and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And uh, then ten day, and then this is followed immediately by his ascension. He visibly, physically, publicly rises into the heavens, uh, and uh, the disciples watch him do this. And then ten days later, as they are praying in the upper room. Uh, the day of Pentecost happens, and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they begin speaking in tongues, and whether it is the tongues themselves or the sound of a mighty rushing wind or their general excitement and demeanor, uh, they drew a crowd, and Peter preached to this crowd, and 3,000 people were saved and baptized on day one of the church age. This is not a bad start. And then we get a glimpse, just a glimpse, of uh, the life of the church. Let me read this again. This is from Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continually being, yeah, sorry, so continue, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I just wanted to say a word about uh, something here that I'm not going to go deeply into. It's just something I've been looking at lately, uh, and it was kind of triggered by a statement that I heard at a men's conference just uh, a week ago. And you've heard me talk, especially during the fast, 
I'll mention a particular author who has written about fasting. And I like him, and I like his work. Uh, and he's written, a, a, he's most famous for a work on the spiritual disciplines. Um, and there have been, uh, there are classes, there are whole movements, and tons of books now dedicated to not just the disciplines, uh, but what they call contemplative prayer and spiritual formation. I mean, I know a guy who's getting his, working on his doctorate right now in spiritual formation. And it has to do with a lot of uh, uh, what, what, I would norm, what I would have referred to years ago as hippie stuff, okay? Uh, a lot of um and, and you know, centering and, and silence and stuff like this. Now, listen to me. There is value. Obviously, if you're talking about meditation, it implies, you know, a, there's a privacy there. Uh, there's a, uh, there's an element of repetition, uh, but it's, it's easy to get off balance with this stuff. Obviously, you know, if we're talking about the spiritual disciplines, fasting is one of them. There's biblical value in fasting, but it has always, not always, but for years it's troubled me when I see great works and even full conferences dedicated to contemplative type stuff. It seems so inward focused. And talking about, well, we're talking about developing and forming the Spirit. And you know what goes through my mind when I see these things is, I have a hard time imagining, for instance, the church in China doing a lot of this. And I don't see them doing a lot of this in the early church. What I see are people who are so busy living the gospel and preaching the gospel that the growth and the formation takes place organically. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not dismissing a whole movement here. I don't know enough about it to dismiss it. What I see is this. Here's what they were about in the early church. They never forsook the assembling of themselves together. They were focused on the doctrine of the apostles, on fellowship with one another, on the Lord's table, and on sharing Not just sharing the gospel, but sharing their material resources with one another. So the spiritual disciplines for them were the word of God, prayer, giving, service. Think about that. Because it's pretty simple. If we we focus on those things, now again, we look at the early church, and what we don't see a lot of, uh, in, in, in these verses anyway, is... What were these people doing for a living? Well, Peter, for three years, you know, he hasn't worked as a fisherman in three years. What's he doing for a living? What did he learn under Jesus? He was supported by the people that followed them. They had a treasurer. You know, Paul will, will flat out teach about it in his letters, but they were already doing this early on. Other people, uh, you know, they, they bought and sold. You know, maybe these, we talk about uh, Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they... they sold some land. Were they actual real estate agents? I don't know. There were people who bought and sold things. There were people who made things. Uh, But the implication is, however they prospered, they shared it with the rest of the group. Because what was, they weren't defined by what they did, uh, by their occupation. What defined them was their relationship to Jesus Christ and their relationship to one another. Our church, any church, will grow, will prosper, will make an impact when we, become to, when we come to see this as the center of our week, the center of our life, not just something that we add on at the end of it. This is truth, folks. When we see 
Christ and his church as the center, that out of which flows everything else, everything good in our lives, we prosper as individuals and the church prospers as a church. Now, Peter and John, uh, the next thing we see here is Peter and John, they heal the man at the gate beautiful. Remember that? Look at us. Uh, Silver and gold have I none. And then uh, that gets a lot of attention. Peter preaches again. This time it leads to his arrest and John's. But now there are 5,000 believers. And this is all in the first year, the first days, really, of the church age. The religious authorities at this point, officially forbid them to preach Jesus. Jesus said that there would be uh, resistance. He said that there would be persecution. And this is always, it always happened. It's always going to be there. Uh, this is the first thing we see of official persecution. Uh, and it's coming not from the civil authorities, but from the religious authorities, which kind of functioned as civil authorities in Judea. Um, then we get uh, we get another brief account of how they were sharing all things and had uh, uh, that they had with one another. Uh, and as I mentioned, we have the sad case of Ananias and Sapphira who lied about how much they sold something for and, and were struck dead as a result. Now this could have still been as early as 30 A.D., possibly as late as 32, if you're keeping track here. And the church continued to grow. We don't just, we see signs and wonders and we see some specifics, but we also see multitudes who were brought to the disciples and all healed, just like was happening in Jesus' ministry. And, uh, there's further persecution. Uh, all of the apostles were jailed at one point by the Sanhedrin, uh, but they were freed by an angel, only instead of running back, they just started preaching there in the temple courtyard. Uh, until they were brought before the Sanhedrin and urged and commanded to preach no more in the name of Jesus. And they stood up and said, uh, we can listen to you or we can listen to God, who, by the way, sent the angel to free us from your jail. And so they uh, warned them strictly and beat them and sent them home. And then we see this. It's a pretty pivotal moment when Gamaliel offers his advice to the rest of the council. He says, look, these, let's leave these men alone. That's the best course. Because, uh, you know, this has happened before. We had, uh, what's his name, Thutis, and we had another guy who stood up trying to be something, and they got a quick following, uh, but it, it, it finally uh, it, it petered out. Nothing came of it, and if this is nothing, nothing's going to come of it. However, if it's God, we don't want to be fighting against God. So leave it alone either way. And it was also about this time uh, that, the, that they chose the seven for deacons, it's a, the church was growing and there was so much uh, administrative work to do uh, that Peter said, look, you know, we really need to be dedicating ourselves to the study of the word and sharing of the word. Uh, let's, let's choose seven men of good repute, follow the Holy Spirit to, uh, to serve the people. So they, they, they uh, chose these deacons. It was also about this time that many of the priests came to be believers. And so you had a very uh, positive response at last from the Jewish authorities to the message of Christ. They bring something with them that isn't very pretty, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes too. But meanwhile, one of these seven, Stephen, uh, preaches an amazing sermon and uh, is stoned to death. <laughs> as his, uh, as their resp- his response wasn't quite as positive. Uh, but it was an amazing sermon. The reason they stoned him to death because it was a very effective sermon. It cut them to the quick. And they rushed at him literally with their fingers in their ears screaming so that they couldn't hear anything else he was saying. And, and uh, he, at that point, became the first official martyr 
of the faith. And this was about A.D. 34. Then, at that time, there arose a great persecution against the church, and there was a guy named Saul who was at the center of that. Saul was actually, you remember, present at Stephen's stoning. I think it's significant that he was the man, the people who went to stone Stephen laid their coats or their outer garments at the feet of this man named Saul. And I think it's significant that he was there to hear Stephen cry out, God, don't hold this sin against them. I see heaven opening and Jesus standing. Uh, I think, I'm utterly convinced this had an impact on Saul, but not so much of an impact that he dropped to his knees and repented at that point. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples as he uh, was making his way to Damascus. And, uh, but before we get to that, the church scattered as a result of this persecution. You had over 5,000 believers, who knows how many at this point, thousands more, I'm sure, all in, more or less in Jerusalem, but they began as a result of this persecution to spread out. And as a result of that, the gospel went, was spread beyond Jerusalem with uh, particularly good early results in Samaria, where Philip was preaching, and it was during Philip's ministry uh, where he was getting this great response, and one of the people that heard him and responded was a, a guy named Simon, who was a sorcerer. He was converted, and uh, among many other people. And when the disciples heard that these Samaritan uh, Samaritans had become believers, they sent Peter and John to them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is important. It's worth repeating because it shines light on an important truth that these were baptized believers in Samaria who had not received the Holy Spirit. I point that out because there are still people who believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit and salvation are the same thing. They are not. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens subsequent to salvation. All right, It is the Holy Spirit that seals us at the time of our salvation, but the infilling or uh, initial infilling or baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens afterward. And this is what they sent Peter and John for. And it was also, uh, and you remember, uh, it was in Simon figures in this thing because he saw when Peter and John laid his hands on these people, he saw that the people that they laid hands on were filled with the Holy Spirit. It does not say it explicitly in this passage, although it does in others. Probably what he saw was, uh, were the, was the people speaking in tongues. And so he went to them and said, oh, I want to do that too. I want to be able to, to lay my hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. So he offers them money, and Peter says, you, you and your money can both go to hell. This, is, this gift isn't for sale. This is something that, that, that is a gift from God. You need to repent. So he says, oh, please pray to, pray to God for me. Meanwhile, Philip goes down and preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, another very famous passage. And then in chapter 9, Saul becomes a new man. I don't remember who it was that preached to him, but they reasoned with him from the Scriptures, and after much soul-searching, Saul came to the very uh, low-key decision to give his life to Christ. That's not how it happened, is it? Jesus Christ himself knocked Saul off his horse and said, I'm Jesus and I'm God. What are you doing? Now, let me interrupt myself here. This is an extraordinary thing, and I don't think it wasn't in my notes, but then again, about 80% of what I preach on Sunday morning isn't in my notes. So forgive me if I shared this with you. Uh, And feel free to interrupt me if I shared this with you, unless you just want to hear it again. This is one of those salvations that we want to see happen. You know, it's, I mean, I enjoy sharing my faith. I enjoy answering questions. Uh, I probably shouldn't, but I enjoy arguing. Uh, But Saul wasn't argued into the faith. Uh, 
and you wonder, wow, you know, uh, this, this was a, what, what, what's this, this is a no-brainer. I mean, when, when God appears to you, this blinding light, this powerful voice, and says, I am God, I, I am Jesus who you persecute, what are you going to do? You're going to get saved. And it makes me wonder, what did God just decide to do that to Saul? What was it about Saul that made him such a candidate for such powerful conversion? I have a theory, but I can't prove it scripturally. But let me tell you a story. Uh, that I, Again, this is a story I've shared with you before. My first boss in ministry, Brother Matt Gober, uh, had, an, had an experience very similar to that. Very hard man. He wasn't just a non-Christian. He was, all, he was practically an anti-Christian. His life was certainly anti-Christian. He was a hellion. He, I mean, he was the drug, running drugs coast to coast on motorcycles, getting in fights. Uh, just, you know, the, the stereotypical one percenter. He was a bad dude. When he got saved, he got, and people had tried to witness to him before, but it wasn't like this slow conversion. I mean, people tried to witness. This literally happened. Somebody knock on his door to give him a track, and he'd punch him in the face. Women! Punched this woman in the face, gave her a bloody nose, broke her nose, knocked her teeth out, something, just for trying to hand him a track. Uh, this was his response to the gospel. But one night he walks home and opens the door of his apartment, and what he sees is a fiery, flaming cross with Jesus on it saying, Mac, I love you. And he drops to his knees and gives his heart to Christ. Well, who's not going to? But, you find, I, 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 I heard him share his testimony a dozen times, but I also read his book before I went down there. And this was the most power, powerful part. This was the part that really hit me. Uh, as he was early in, the, in his days as a Christian, he was going around trying to make amends with people, getting in touch with family, people who he considered better than himself, people he had hurt. And when he went to visit his grandmother, uh, she, she was telling him about before his grandfather had died. And she came up and she showed him this was his room. He, he was bedfast for the last uh, weeks, months, however many, however long it was of his life. He was too sick to go anywhere, including church. But every Sunday after church, the elders would come visit him in his home. And they would go up to his room and, he, and at his request, they would help him out of his bed so that he could get into a kneeling posture of prayer specifically to pray for his grandson, Mac, who was lost in sin. <laughs> and I think you can draw a pretty straight line from that kind of dedicated prayer to this kind of dramatic salvation. And so my question is, what kind of prayer was being made for Saul? You've got the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years. And one of the most powerful and revolutionary things he told them was what? Pray for your enemies. Bless those that curse you. And there was no greater enemy to the church at this time than Saul. And rather than praying oh you know we, we see an example when they were beaten they didn't go back saying oh lord strike the sanhedrin protect us from them they said oh lord grant your servants boldness so that we can keep on doing what we're doing despite their threats i personally am convinced even though i can't point to chapter and verse that much prayer was being lifted up 
specifically on behalf of Saul, and that it was because of this that he had this tremendous, dramatic salvation experience on the Damascus Road. He got saved. He got saved hard. (laughs) All right? And, uh, of course, you know a little bit about what happens to him. Let me show you one other Saul story, just because it's a cool story. On my first mission, short-term mission trip to Mexico with YWAM, we were down in uh, Aguas Calientes in the Monterey area, and we were at this university. I was part of a small team. Most of the people went door-to-door inviting people to uh, a service we were doing that night and stuff. Uh, A handful of us went to this university campus. And we're looking for opportunities to share. We really didn't have a plan. We didn't, we didn't have a, a letter of introduction or anything. And none of us really spoke Spanish. You know, I could, I could greet you and, you know, with the list of phrases, uh, somos cristianos de los Estados Unidos. Tiene una Biblia en su casa? Quiere? Es gratis. No cuesta nada. Right? Es un regalo. Right. So, this is the kind of thing we could say, and yet we wanted an opportunity to share. Uh, with, with, with more than that. So we stood there and we prayed. We just stood right there and it, it, we were surrounded by, you know, they were all like one story low buildings, uh, with several classrooms on this beautiful day. And we prayed, Lord, give us an opportunity to speak to some of these students. And it wasn't a couple minutes after we said amen and it starts raining out of, this was a sunny day and a cloud just drifted over and dropped rain on us. And we're standing there trying to get shelter. And a teacher sticks his head out the door and says, come in and get out of the rain. And then asks us, so what are you doing here? And then we had this opportunity to speak to this classroom. Well, here's what we're doing here. We're somos cristianos de los Estados Unidos. Uh, Tiene una Biblia en su clase? And just shared a little bit there. Uh, and somewhere right around this time, a young Mexican uh, a student came up and introduced himself because he spoke English. He recognized that we weren't Mexican, introduced himself to you, and he said, do you need a translator? Yes, you're exactly what we're looking for. I can walk around with you. I can translate. Uh, he had lived in America for a while. He spoke very, his English was very good. Uh, and his name was Saul. Saul Rueda, which is Spanish for wheel, I think. And he was a young man. We talked to him. He wasn't a believer, but he was very kind. He just was excited about hanging out with us. He actually took us to the radio station. The, the college had a, the, a, what turned out to be the biggest, most powerful radio transmitter in, in, the, in, in I don't know how many miles. And so they decided, well, we'll just interview these Americans. And so they give us this on-the-spot interview, and we were able to preach the gospel over you know 50,000 watts of power or whatever it was. And, uh, and at one point, I remember Bill Burtness saying something like, uh, of course, you know, they would ask a question, Saul would translate, we would answer, and he would translate the answer. So they'd ask a question, Saul would ask us the question, we'd give him the answer, he'd answer it. At one point they said, uh, you know, what's, what's your ultimate purpose for being here? Why did you choose this place? And Bill Burton says, we believe God has a plan for Mexico. And Saul, instead of translating it, he, tr- he says back to Bill, he says, he does? And Bill says, yes. And Saul says, a good one? So anyway, we knew because we were getting to know Bill Burtness pretty well that Bill was going to lean on this kid. There was nothing he was not going to do to get Saul saved just so at the end of the week he could testify that Saul became a Paul. And he did. He did. Saul became a Paul before we left. Anyway, Saul, 
Esau's conversion was about 36, 37 A.D., if you want to make a note there. And he comes to Jerusalem where they weren't real eager to accept him because <laughs> they knew who he was. His reputation preceded him. But good old Barnabas took him under his wing. Uh, and uh, Saul's preaching was so powerful and so effective that he quickly became the number one target of persecution. They wanted to eliminate Saul more than anybody else. Uh, the church continued to grow, continued healings, even resurrections. People were raised from the dead. And then the next big thing, and this is getting close to where we wrapped up, not quite there, but very close, uh, is the uh, delegation from Cornelius. This is a Gentile. I think, can't prove it, I just think there's a strong possibility that Cornelius was the centurion whose servant Jesus healed. Uh, Cornelius was a centurion. Um, but he's a Gentile, and Peter goes there because of a vision that he sees and preaches the gospel, and Cornelius and all of his household believe. This, you, you cannot miss this, can't afford to miss this. Was, this was a huge shift in the apostles' understanding. Peter, uh, when he returns from Cornelius' house, has to defend the very fact that he was there. What were you doing under the roof of a Gentile? Uh, but he successfully defends it, and this, uh, and this little episode is kind of summed up in their response to it in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And well, we read, and again, we read, and we're like, duh, he, he died for the world, for God so loved the world. Jesus said these things himself. But this was how narrow their view of the world was. The Messiah was the Jewish Messiah. He's our Messiah. And they were having a hard enough time just convincing other Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And now, before they can even get all the Jews uh, on the same sheet of music, Cornelius gets saved. And they know he's saved because guess what else happens? He starts speaking in tongues, he and his household. So they're like, they got the Holy Spirit and saved all at the same time. And if God has blessed them with the same Holy Spirit, there's no way we can argue against this. And they accept it. And they're like, glory be to God. He really did what he said he's done, going to do, by the way, throughout the whole Old Testament, that he was going to save the Gentiles as well. We've seen scripture after scripture of that, right? So at the same time uh, that this is going on, you know, Peter and is uh, ministering to Cornelius. About this time, Barnabas and Saul spend a year teaching in Antioch. This is Antioch of Syria. And it was in Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. This was almost certainly... Uh, a derogatory term, uh, kind of like, you know, uh, I don't know how many of you remember Madeline Murray O'Hare, you know, one of the most famous atheists in America, uh, not single-handedly, but very publicly claimed responsibility for getting uh, prayer out of schools, and she would refer to Christians as Christers. When she was sick in the hospital, she wanted guards out there. She didn't want any blankety-blank Christers praying for her. So, and I think that's kind of way that Christians was kind of like the Christer of that day. But neither here nor there. It was uh, then about this time that Herod started harassing the church. And by harass, I mean he killed James, the brother of John. And then threw, P uh, threw Peter in prison, intending to do the same. 
But Peter was, what do you know, freed by an angel. And this was about 44 A.D. Then Herod dies, and Barnabas and Saul take Mark, or John Mark, on their first missionary journey. This is about A.D. 46. They go to Antioch again, Antioch of Syria. Then they go to Antioch of Pisidia, and then Iconium, Lystra, Derby. This uh, trip took about three years. And while they were at Lystra, this is one of my most famous passages. We preached on this, I think, on a Wednesday night because we were doing a healing service. But this is when Paul it says they were preaching the gospel there. And while Paul preached, he was looking. There was a cripple, a man who had been crippled since uh, his from his mother's womb. And Paul looked at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. This is so important. It needs to be underlined, highlighted, draw a circle around it in your Bible because it lets us know that in the gospel is what you need to receive faith. It didn't say Paul was preaching on healing. He was preaching the gospel, and he saw that this man had faith to be healed, and so he spoke to him, told him to get up. He was healed. And then this was such an extraordinary thing that the crowd started to worship Paul and Barnabas. And then... uh Somewhere in there, Paul was stoned either to death or nearly to death. Uh, and they make the return journey. And as they're making their way back, they go back. You know, they went up, like I said, all through those cities and some others. And then they went back through the same cities just to kind of check on them, encourage them, right? Strengthen them on the way back. And they returned to Antioch in Syria where they stayed, according to Acts uh, chapter 14, for a long time. I don't know how long a long time was, but they stayed there. And while they were there in Antioch, some Jews came, Jewish Christians, all right? These were not those who were fighting the gospel. These were Jewish Christians, but they came and stirred up some trouble, and this was the kind of trouble that was going to haunt Paul for the rest of his ministry. It would also drive Paul to write some very passionate letters uh, that would clarify exactly what it means to be saved. So it's, it's, very, it's, it's kind of good that this uh, this happened. You know, I'm not saying that God caused them to come and stir up the trouble, but he certainly used this trouble to cause Paul to write some things that make it very clear to us today exactly what it means to be a Christian. This brings us to about 49 AD. So I want you, what I want you to see is that this is 20 years or less from the ascension. The whole church age is less than 20 years old. And it's important for a couple of reasons. It's important, one, because we know the, st- the, the stuff that is written here is a very accurate account. This is not stuff that was being uh, made up or remembered a 100 years after the fact. The people that were in this story were people that had walked with Jesus. And so Luke, who we're almost certain is the one who's writing this down, had access to first-hand sources, and life moved, even though there was a lot going on, and it seems to be going very quickly, life, because of, uh, you know, just the mode of travel and everything, people had a lot of time to talk about these things. It wasn't like, well, we've only got a half hour with you, so let me get as much information from you. No, they would stay places for months, for years, and, and learn these things, and write them down, and remember them. So we've got a pretty, we've, we can, we've got a very trustworthy account uh, of, of the history of the early church in the book of Acts. The other thing I want you to see is that Living Word Family Church just celebrated its 37th year, right? We're 37 years old as a church. And I have very clear memories of our history. 
Don't you? Many of you? Some of you going all the way back to day one. More important, this is really what I want you to see, is that after nearly 20 years, the fire had not begun to diminish. The church in the book of Acts, 19, maybe 20 years old, and the fire had not gone out, it had not grown weaker, it is still growing, it is glowing brighter than ever, it is setting the world on fire. And here's my application. (laughs) Has your fire gone out? Has ours? If we feel like it has, if you personally feel like yours has gone out, if you sense that ours as a church has, why? Why do you think it has or why do you feel that way? And more importantly, what's the solution? Are we looking for something new? Are we waiting for God to do a new thing? Because be careful. I'm going to read this. I'm going to share this. This was something that Guy Dunnick wrote last week or shared last week. Just a couple paragraphs. Listen to this. What season are we really in? The season we are currently in is the season of the last days, the church age, the age of the working of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ, the dispensation of grace, the living out of the New Testament by believers, the time of the occupying of the earth by God's sons and daughters, and the season where God expresses his will through the church under the direction of the head. This season is the season of the ongoing harvest of souls and the bringing in of God's harvest till he comes again. This unique season in the ages began on the day of Pentecost and will continue right up to the second coming of Jesus. At the time of Jesus' second coming, this unique season will be concluded. This age will be closed out and a new age will begin. It is this season that believers and ministers must be aware of being in. All the other seasons that believers and ministers continue to claim we are now in or are coming into are not existent where the plannings of God are concerned. In this unique season, a season that has already endured for over 2,000 years, the church is to grow to maturity and work by the power of the Holy Spirit to continue the ministry of Jesus in all its fullness and all throughout the world. It is this season that believers and ministers must be aware of and should be working in conjunction with. All the other faux seasons imagined and proclaimed by men are little more than distractions masquerading as spirituality. Don't be fooled and don't be distracted by these repeating declarations of new seasons. Stay focused on the clear and obvious plan of God and the distinct and important role of the church. And every believer in this long season we are in, a season that began on the day of Pentecost and will continue until the second coming of Jesus, contrary to the declarations of some, there really are no new seasons in God as the calendar turns. What God wants in this true extended season, in this grace, church, and Holy Ghost dispensation is the same thing he wanted on the day that Jesus commissioned his church to go ye into all the world, telling them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Live and work in this season till you leave or until he comes. If anybody would like a copy of that, maybe I'll just make that available. Maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll, if you're interested, I, never mind if you're interested, I'll pop it into an email t- today or tomorrow. And, and listen, I want you to, what, he's not saying that God can't be doing different things 
on a small scale. And when we can go through things individually as seasons, you know, what Michael O'Mardian or Stormy O'Mardian years ago called seasons of the soul, or that we can be going through a season as a local church, what he's saying is that God is not, okay, now it's the time for this. Now it's a, now my new season is this. He's, he's hit the nail on the head. The season we are in is the church age, the last days, the time of the Great Commission, the exact same dispensation they were in in the book of Acts that we're reading about. This is exciting. You see, some people see that. It's like, oh, I want a new thing. I want this. I want to see mass healings. I want to see miracles, signs and wonders, resurrections, people getting filled with the Spirit. I want to see people get knocked off their horses. Right? You do too, don't you? Praise the worship team. You can be coming up here. So we see, again, we might have personal seasons, seasons of struggle, seasons of rest. But the the season we are in remains the same. And if you've lost your fire, man, I've been there too. Don't waste another day wondering, what's it going to take? What's God going to have to do to get me fired up again? Is it too late for me? Wait for somebody else to do something, maybe. I remember when Armin Morales was here a couple of years ago. You know, I, I, remember, I have such warm memories of that, of that evening in ministry. Beth and I were so excited. I was probably more excited than she was. I think I might have been a little bit more of an Imperials fan than she was. But I'm thinking, you know, here's a guy. He's 85 years old. I want him in just because he was an Imperial during the time that I really loved the Imperials. And, uh, wow, this was a powerful night of ministry. Not, not a lot of hype. Not a lot of noise, but just a strong healing anointing. But here's what he said. He said that they they had retired to Hawaii, I think. And God spoke to him and said, I don't want you to retire. I want you to refire. Well, that can sound kind of trite, unless it's you. Unless God speaks that to you. And you understand there's a big difference. And let me tell you something. If you are here at Living Word Family Church this morning, God wants you fired up. Now, fired up doesn't need to look like something in particular. I'm talking about how you live your life and how you serve your brothers and sisters. And we're talking about this. One of the ways we do this this is a year of giving. So we want to see that for sure. But you know what you need? You know what you really need? Let me ask you something first. Stand up. First of all, are you saved? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have personally trusted him for your salvation, that's what that means. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe? Will you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe that God has raised him from the dead? If you confess and believe, according to the Bible, you're saved. But there's more to being a disciple than getting saved. All right? So I first want to ask that before we do anything else. If there's anybody in there who has never confessed, their, confessed themselves as a sinner before God, confessed personally their need for a Savior, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, never acknowledged the price He paid to save you, and you'd like to do that this morning, when we open the altars up here, you come straight to me. 
and say, what must I do to be saved? Or I want to get saved. I want to give my life to Christ, whatever. I want to pray with you for sure. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.